0: That's right, isn't it? That the Lord is great and He strikes terror in the hearts of His enemies when He rises out of His holy temple to judge the world. Sobering words that prepare us this morning to hear from Luke chapter 21. This morning, beginning at verse 5, Jesus, of course, is in and around the temple, teaching the people as he has come into Jerusalem, he has evaded the various traps of the Sanhedrin to put him to death before he will decide to lay down his own life. But he certainly has not been shying away from still pronouncing his judgment on the unbelieving. Beginning at verse 5 this morning, this is God's Word. Some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, As for what you see here, The time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. And, teacher, they asked, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to take place? And he replied, Watch out that you are not deceived. For many will come in my name, claiming, I am he, and the time is near. But do not follow them. When you hear of wars and of revolutions, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and famines and pestilences in various places and fearful events and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay hands on you and persecute you. They will deliver you to synagogues and prisons and you will be brought before kings and governors and all on account of my name. And this will result in your being witnesses to them. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves, for I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. And all men will hate you because of me. But not a hair of your head will perish, and by standing firm you will gain life. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, let those in the city get out, and let those in the country not enter the city. For this is the time of punishment in fulfillment of all that has been written. How dreadful it will be in those days for the pregnant women and the nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles till the fullness of the until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. Men will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming onto the world, for the heavenly bodies even will be shaken. And at that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And when these things begin to take place, you stand and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing nigh. He told them this parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Be careful, or your hearts will be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the anxieties of life, and that day will close on you unexpectedly like a trap. For it will come upon all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch, and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen, and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Each day Jesus was teaching at the temple and each evening He was out to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives and all the people came early in the morning to hear Him at the temple. So far the reading of God's Holy Word. Loved ones in the Lord Jesus Christ and friends, There are four pressing questions here, really, that demand an answer. And you will not be surprised to hear these questions because you probably were thinking of them as you were hearing this text read. The first question is, what two events exactly is Jesus predicting? What two events exactly is Jesus predicting? And secondly, what is the timeline exactly? that he gives for the unfolding of these two events. And third, what is the connection between these two events? And last, what does any of this have to do with me? What two events is Jesus predicting? What is the timeline of these two events that Jesus is laying out exactly? What is the connection between these two events? And what does any of this have to do, really, with any of us? living 2,000 years after He spoke this prophecy. Let's take them one by one. What two events exactly is Jesus predicting? Well, it's a little tricky, isn't it? I mean, sometimes in this passage, it sounds like Jesus is only talking about one main event or one series of events that will take place in one short period of time. But really, when you carefully examine what Jesus says it becomes clear that He's talking about two different events. And the first one is the destruction of the temple and the absolute pummeling of the city of Jerusalem by the Roman armies in 70 A.D. as God's judgment against the Israelite nation for breaking covenant with Him. That's the first thing that Jesus is talking about. The second event that he's talking about is his own final and personal return to the world when he will bring an end to the world as we know it and he will judge all the unbelievers of all the nations and he will finally usher in that glorification that we keep talking about. Two different events. The destruction of the temple, the pummeling of Jerusalem by the Roman armies as God's servants sent by him to punish them and cut them off as he's covenant people for their disobedience and later his own final personal return when he will bring an end to the world and judge all his enemies and bring us into the new heavens and the new earth. What is the timeline that Jesus gives for the two events that he is predicting to the disciples and to his listeners? Well, let's just go through what he says. Look in verse 5. Some of his disciples are remarking about how beautiful the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus says, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another and every one of them will be thrown down. Well, that's an obvious reference, isn't it, to the actual destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And that actually happened. Some years later, after Jesus spoke this, the Roman armies came in to the city and destroyed that city and destroyed the temple. And the rubble that used to be the glorious temple in Jerusalem, a temple that when people would visit it, people who lived out in the country in the day that Jesus is speaking, would be absolutely awestruck when they saw the magnificence of this building. And when they saw that this temple was the economic center of all of this uh, glorious nation of Israel which God had blessed, and the rich were adorning the temple with the best of the best. A kind of splendor that that part of the world had never seen. And Jesus says, it's not going to be long before that temple is completely destroyed. It's not going to be long before that temple is completely destroyed. Now it's interesting when Jesus says that to consider the question that the disciples ask him. Teacher, verse 7, when will these things happen and what will be the sign that they are about to take place? Now why do they ask that question? Why are they asking Jesus? It is important for us to know when the temple is going to be destroyed and when not one stone is going to be left upon another, what are the signs that that is going to happen? Well, let me tell you, the reason why they're asking that question is because they expect that when the armies descend upon Jerusalem and the temple is destroyed, what will happen at the same time is the end of the world. And when the end of the world is upon the human race, the disciples are thinking, I need to be where Jesus is. The disciples assume that when the temple is destroyed, it will also bring the end of the world. And they want to be prepared, and they want to be exactly where Jesus wants them to be when that time comes, so that they will be able to enter into the glorification. Now, how do you know that's what they're thinking? How do you know that when the disciples ask Jesus about when the destruction of the temple will happen, really what they're asking, or the reason that they're asking, is because they want to know what to do, because that will bring on the end of the world. Well, there's two ways to know. The first is, when they read the Old Testament, the Old Testament spoke of and speaks of the great day of the Lord. And when the Old Testament speaks of the great day of the Lord, it talks about a whole number of different things happening on that same day. One of them is the punishment of Israel by God for their disobedience. Another one of them is God's sweeping judgment over all the earth against all those who are rebellious against Him. And another one is actually the glorification of all things. So the disciples, and along with them, of course, the rabbis of the time and the common man in the Jewish street who had some uh, conversion, at least knowledge of the Old Testament when he thought in the Old Testament of the day of the Lord, he expected all of these things to happen together at once. The punishment of God against Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, the punishment against all of the nations and the bringing in of the new heavens and the new earth, all at once on the day of the Lord. Listen, Joel chapter 2, I'll just give you an example. Joel chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 and 11. Blow a trumpet in Zion. This is a prophecy. And sound an alarm on my holy mountain, says the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. This is Jerusalem. For the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. It is a day of darkness and gloom, of thick clouds and darkness. The dawn is spread over the mountains. There will be a great and mighty people. He's describing the army coming in to bring judgment on Jerusalem. There has never been anything like it, nor will there ever be again after it to the years of many generations. The Lord thunders at the head of His army. His forces are beyond number, and mighty are those who obey His command. The day of the Lord is great, it is dreadful, and who can endure it? The disciples understood that Jesus was talking about the destruction of the temple, the punishment of God against Jerusalem. And they were reminded of prophecies like Joel chapter 2 which said on the day of the Lord He would come to do that to Jerusalem. But you know, then they'd also read places like Ezekiel 30. It says, The word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man prophesy and says, this is what the Lord God said, Wail, alas, for the day is coming. The day is near. Even the day of the Lord is near. It will be a day of clouds, a time of doom for the nations, and a sword will come upon Israel. No, A sword will come upon Egypt and anguish will be in Ethiopia when the slain fall in Egypt. They take away her wealth and her foundations are torn down. Ethiopia and Put and Lud and all of Arabia and Libya and the people of the land that is in league with all of them will fall by the sword. That is also going to happen on the day of the Lord, the prophet said. Not just judgment against Israel, but the final judgment against all of the enemies of God in all of the earth. Zephaniah 1.14, The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and is coming very quickly. Listen, it's the day of the Lord. The warrior cries out bitterly. It's a day of wrath and a day of gloom, a day of trouble and distress, of destruction and desolation, of darkness and fortified cities. I will bring bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord and their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. And neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath. And all the earth will be devoured in the fire of His jealousy, for He will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all of the inhabitants of the earth, on the day of the Lord. The Old Testament says that on the day of the Lord will come the judgment against Israel, and will come the final judgment against all the unbelievers of the earth. But it also says on the day of the Lord that the Lord will bring glorification to the world. Joel chapter three: The day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision, and the Lord roars from Zion and utters forth his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth tremble, but the Lord is a refuge for His people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel. And in that day, the mountains will drip with sweet wine and the hills will flow with milk and all the brooks of Judah will flow with water and a spring will go out from the houses of the Lord to water the valleys. But Judah will be inhabited forever and Jerusalem for all generations. On the same day, from the perspective of the Old Testament prophets, Judgment against Israel, judgment against all the nations of the world and the end and the glorification. In the last days, that mountain of the house, Micah 4, the Lord will establish the chief of the mountains, it will be raised above the hills, and the people will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and the house of the God of Jacob. And in that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather the outcasts, even those whom I have afflicted, now make the lame a remnant and the outcasts a strong nation and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now and forevermore. Do you hear him talking about assembling the lame and gathering the outcasts? Remember how Jesus all along has been giving a foretaste of the glorification by coming to those who are lame and making them walk, by coming to the dead and raising them out of a coffin, by coming to the sick and healing them, by coming to the outcasts and restoring them. To the community. That is all a picture of the great glorification. And the Old Testament prophets said that that glorification would come on the same day as the judgment on Israel, as the judgment on all of the nations. That's what the disciples are thinking when Jesus says then that Israel is going to be judged, then that means the end of the world is coming. And if I am going to be in the glorification which I want to be Jesus, I have to know when it is going to happen and what, basically where I need to find you. There's another reason that we know this is what the disciples are thinking when they ask Him that question and it's proven by Jesus' answer. In verse eight, he says, Watch out that you are not deceived eight and nine, watch out that you are not deceived, for many will come in my name, claiming I am he and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and revolutions, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Look at verse nine. What's he talking about in verse nine? What wars and revolutions? that the disciples are going to hear about, but they shouldn't be frightened. It's the wars and the revolutions. It's all of the looming political disasters and upheaval that lead to the final coming in of the Roman armies into Jerusalem. You're going to be hearing about these things. Israel is going to be scared because there are armies amassing against her. Don't be frightened. Don't be frightened. These things must happen. Happen first. What things? The upheaval, the coming in of the Roman army, and the destruction of the temple. The pummeling of Jerusalem by these armies. Jesus says, it must happen. But look at the last half of the verse. But the end will not come right away. This is very important about Jesus' timeline in this passage and in the parallel passages. Mark chapter 13 and others, Matthew 24. Jesus says that this is going to happen, the destruction of Jerusalem is going to happen, but there is going to be a period of time in between the destruction of Jerusalem and the end of the world. I know that when you read the Old Testament, the prophets are speaking of it happening in one day of the Lord. But they are speaking in shadows and They are speaking vaguely and Jesus defines a little bit about the timeline for us. There will be a delay between the destruction of Jerusalem and the end of the world. He goes on to describe in verses 10 and 11 the character of the time between the destruction of Jerusalem, the pummeling of that city and of the temple, and the end of the world. He says, nation, verse 10, will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and famines and pestilences in various places, and fearful events and great signs from heaven. Now, it's sad, but in the United States, especially in the last... 150 years, Christian people have been trained to read verses like this as pointing to specific disasters right before the final end of the world. But that is not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, you will recognize as a regular part of the time period between the destruction of Jerusalem and my final return to judge the living and the dead, a regular part of life will be nations rising against nations and kingdoms against kingdoms and great earthquakes and famines and pestilences and fearful events and great signs from heaven. And that's just been shown to be true, hasn't it? Various people across various cultures will all testify to you of the... Struggle under the common curse and the preponderance of great earthquakes in the world and famines and pestilences and diseases. Some ancient, like the plague. Some modern, like AIDS. Some horrific earthquakes. Some tsunamis. Some towns being submerged underwater. Some terrorism. Some wars. All kinds of things that will continue to take place in the world, fearful events, insecurity, until the Lord returns. He's not talking about a greater amount of these things at a particular time in history, and then it will end. He's talking about this is the nature of the world in which we live. And it's always interesting that whenever the Christian church goes through a specific time of, of great suffering or there are great uh, particular wars or upheavals, they always, there will always be a wing of the church that rises up and says, well, now the end is here, because such and such and such happened politically. Of course, they're forgetting about the 2,000-year period before them, or wherever they are along the timeline, where plenty of horrific disasters have engulfed all kinds of people and Christians. And that didn't bring about the end right away. The point is, he's describing a character of the whole period in between the destruction of Jerusalem and the end. How does he want the disciples to, therefore, respond? Before all this, verse 12, they will lay hands on you and pursue you. What is all this? Well, it's before all the end of the world, but even in their case, before the destruction of the temple, right? Before all of this happens... They will lay hands on you and persecute you. They'll deliver you to the synagogues and prisons and you will be brought before kings and governors and all on account of my name. This will result in your being witnesses to them. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And they will put some of you to death and all men will hate you because of me but not a hair of your head will perish by standing firm you will gain life you know he told the disciples this because they were going to be tempted thinking that the end of the world was upon them that they were going to be part of God's army to violently attack all of his enemies and Jesus gives them the character of the church in between the time of the destruction of Jerusalem or even Prior to that, before he comes in the end, he said, now is not a time for fighting. Now is a time for you as Christians to suffer, disciples. Now it is a time for you to speak the truth, a truth, a wisdom which no one can refute. And you will confound the foolishness of the world by your words because I am giving you them by my Spirit, but the thanks you will get is you will be tossed into prison you will be kicked out of synagogues. Your own people will reject you, just as they are about to reject me. You will be brought before kings and governors. And isn't this true as we read the New Testament further on of the disciples that they were persecuted sorely for preaching the gospel? That the Christian community was forced underground to avoid the hatred and the violence. Now, did those Christians say that it was right for them to take up arms to defend themselves as the church? No. No. The church's duty was to make up their minds not to worry even though they would be persecuted and to respond with the preaching of the gospel and the faithful witness even unto death. No matter if their parents or relatives or friends or the government would persecute them and hate them, Jesus said, you may even die, but not a hair of your head will perish. What what does that mean? How can somebody die and not a hair of their head will perish? Well, it's because what? They will be raised to life. Jesus is saying, if you suffer and die to the disciples, and to them this was meaningful, right? Because some of them would face death as they held fast to the faith. He was telling them that if you die, you will be with me in paradise, where I have ascended to the Father. And at the end, when I do come and bring the completion of all things, I will bring you out of the grave. By standing firm, you will gain life. He's preparing them for the terrible suffering... Now, some people question this, but it's obvious, isn't it? There's there's a delay between the destruction of Jerusalem and the end. So he has to prepare the disciples for a period of time. Some of the disciples likely outlived the destruction of Jerusalem, and these instructions would apply to them too in that age. Verses 20 and following, Jesus returns to speak specifically of the destruction of Jerusalem. When you see that city, verse 20, being surrounded by the armies, you will know that its desolation is near. And He gives some details in verse 23 how dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. They will fall, verse 24, by the sword and be taken as prisoners to all the nations. And if you're interested in this kind of thing, go and read some of the secular history about what happened when the Roman armies came into Jerusalem in 70 A.D. It's awful. It's awful. It is some of the most despicable and horrific, violent, brutal battles and wars and punishments that this world has ever seen. It says, the hand of the Lord through the Roman armies coming upon his disobedient people. Jerusalem will be trampled, the end of verse 24. They'll be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. What does that mean? Jerusalem will be trampled. This is talking about 70 AD, right? Trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Well, when you hear that word until, immediately your mind goes to a time reference, right? But I encourage you not to to read it that way. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles that the times of the Gentiles will be fulfilled. The Apostle Paul in Romans 11 is commenting very likely on these words of Jesus. He says, brothers, I don't want you to be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part that the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And what we see going on here is that God blinded many of the Israelites on purpose so that they would disobey Him, so that they would reject Christ and put Him to death, so that Christ would indeed pay for the sins of all of His people, whether they be Jew or Gentile, and so that the Gentiles then would receive the Gospel too. This had to happen, Jesus says. They have to reject Me. And they have to be punished for their covenant disobedience of rejecting me, their full and final apostasy, so that even the elect among them can be saved, and the elect among the Gentiles can be saved, and the gospel can go out to the Gentiles, because the Jews won't have any part of it for a while. Verses 25 through 28, again, talk about that between time and that unmistakable end that comes to the between time. There will be signs in the sun and moon and stars, and on earth nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. Men will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. And that's what goes on today. You know, how do Christians respond to natural disaster? Well, we don't say that natural disasters are particular judgments against particular people. God doesn't tell us that in His Word. We may say that about what happened in 70 A.D. with Jerusalem because God tells us. But what we can say, and what the Word is very clear about, is that all of these great signs and natural disasters and struggles that go on in between the destruction of Jerusalem and before Jesus returns are signs that God's judgment is coming against the fallen, sinful human race and scientists can feel free to track down the root secondary biological and physiological causes of all of these catastrophes that the world experiences and that is all fine and good but let us not forget what they are pointing to they are pointing to a cataclysmic destruction of the whole heavens and the earth because God is angry with sin we should be reminded of that, right? The scientists tell us that there's an earthquake someday coming on our beloved Los Angeles that will lay, will level this city, and if and when that happens, let us recall that the judgment of God is going to be far worse, far worse than that, far worse than a tsunami which kills thousands of people. Far worse than floods which submerge an entire city. Far worse than a few men flying planes into buildings and killing the workers. Far worse. More horrific. The heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, verse 27, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And when these things begin to take place, stand up and lift your heads because your redemption is drawing near. So for the Christian, for the disciples, their concern is, we want to know where to be when these things happen so that we can be with Jesus to receive the glorification. And he says, at the obvious cataclysmic destruction of the universe, lift up your heads, your redemption is here. No need for you to be concerned because you belong to me. Verse 36 there sums up both of these time periods. Be always on the watch and pray that you will be able to escape all that is about to happen. He's talking to the disciples there about the destruction of Jerusalem, right? And that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. There he's talking about the end. Very quickly, the third question. What is the connection between these two events? One of the things that has puzzled the interpreters of this passage and other passages like this is that it seems that in some cases, Jesus is quoting prophecy from the Old Testament as if it's fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem, but he'll use the same kind of language or the same prophecies to talk about the end of the world. And so among the Christian church, the Orthodox Christian church, which keeps a distinction between these two events, Various interpreters have looked at passages like this and said, well, this applies to that and this applies to this other thing and have some conflict among themselves. And then, of course, there are heretics, people who are saying crazy things like there is only one coming of Jesus Christ and that happened in 70 A.D. One of the reasons for this confusion is that These prophecies, as I said, are quoted in sort of a double fulfillment. Well, why is that? There's a good reason for it. The reason is that the destruction that comes upon Israel is another sign of the destruction that will come on all of the heavens and all of the earth. But more than that, the destruction that comes on Israel is a lesson to all of us who are part of the human race. That we have not obeyed God. Remember, Israel received the law, if you obey me, you will be blessed, but if you disobey me, you will be cursed. If you obey me, I will keep you as my blessed nation, but if you disobey me, I will destroy you. Israel would maintain her status as the covenant people of God based on her works. And so when she is destroyed for her disobedience, we are supposed to look at that and say, that is what I deserve. And if I am left in my own obedience and my own faithfulness to God, then that is what will happen to me. And so we are supposed to see what happened to Jerusalem and say, wow, I will die in the judgment of God if I stand in my own works, that judgment that's coming in the end. And I better not have any self-confidence in my own goodness. Which leads us to that last question, what does any of this have to do with us? Well, let's just be honest. Your heart, our hearts have to be struck with the horrific nature of what happened to Israel in Jerusalem and recognize that this is God's vengeance against sin. And it's not nice to think about this. And this is not proclaimed for many churches, is it? That God hates sin and this is His judgment against it. And what happened in Israel and what happens in great tragedies today is only a small foreshadowing of the terrible judgment that God will pour out on the ungodly world at the end. And people are mocking Christ and mocking His church now, but they got another thing coming. When Peter talks about it, he says that's the same thing. They were mocking Noah when he was building that ark, but what happened? The flood came and destroyed every last one of them. And the same thing is happening. People are saying, oh, the church has been saying for 2,000 years that the end is coming. And even the heretics out of the church are saying, yeah, it can't really be that because it hasn't happened yet. It must have already happened in 70 AD. Well, all of this kind of ignorance and all of this kind of rebellion against the truth of God will be paid for in the last day when He returns to judge. And this is who God is. He is not some sappy, easy-to-be-manipulated, fill-in-the-holes-in-my-life God. He is the Lord of His world which has rebelled against Him and He will judge it. And when we're struck with the horror of our own sin and rebellion against God, we will also then be struck with the horror of what was poured out on Christ for us so that in that day we will stand. You know, I hope you're unsettled when you hear the prophecies of judgment. And I hope you apply that unsettledness to yourself and see that that's the the horrific thing that Jesus went through for you. I mean, this is why Christ is everything for us. Because He delivered us from something worse than even happened to Israel. The plus side of it is you've got to live in light of the glorification. You've got to live in light of the glorification because it is true that for you when Jesus returns it is not judgment but it is glory. It is glory. Stop putting your hope in this world. When these things are taking place stand up and lift your head because your redemption is drawing near. You know, honestly things aren't going your way wait. They will wait and stop putting all of your stock and your emotional health and stability in things that happen to you now. Because the glorification is coming. And our deepest conviction should be in line with that. Our outlook on life has to be conformed to the truth that we will be raised at the end. And that our suffering is only for a time. What else does this have to do with me? Well, hey, live in light of the fact the judgment is coming, the glorification is coming to you, so get your life in order. He mentions specifically dissipation, which basically means hangovers. Connects it with drunkenness and the anxieties of life. These are sins. The compromising lusts of the world. The pride of life. You know, treating Christ like a casual thing. Not having Him at the center of your life. Not being faithful in all the ways which He calls us to be. To worship Him, Lord's day by Lord's day. To be good stewards of all the money and material things that He gives us. To be kind to the outcasts. To repent from sin and compromise with the world. All the, get your lives in order. Because He's coming to judge the living and the dead and to glorify us. The great and glorious God predicted the destruction of Jerusalem and it came. He predicted the end of the world and it is coming. Let us by His grace be prepared for the end. Amen. Let us pray.